Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. I'm Kaylin Collins in Washington, D.C. This morning, as you can see, Poppy and Don are in New York. We're going to begin this hour with breaking news because minutes ago, we just got dramatic new video from the Pentagon released by the military where you can see a Russian fighter jet as it was approaching the back of the American drone that has now been downed four to 5,000 feet in the Black Sea. In this video that has just been released moments ago, you can see where this Russian fighter jet is going up to this American drone. It is dumping fuel on it. That is what you're seeing in the video as it's approaching here. Then the jet goes away. It comes back. It dumps more fuel. And then it hits the American drone. It clipped the drone. One of the Russian fighter jets did. That is when you see the color bars there. Ultimately, of course, this is what led up to the downing of this drone. We have been following all week since this happened. This interaction that happened on Tuesday, we are told, lasted for over half an hour. Now, of course, that U.S. drone was forced to be downed in the Black Sea. General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, says it's about four to 5,000 feet beneath the water. The Russians are actively trying to retrieve it right now amid questions about what they could glean from it if they do. CNN's Natasha Bertrand is live at the Pentagon with more. Natasha, I mean, just watching this video is amazing in and of itself to see these two Russian fighter jets come up to this American drone, this Reaper drone, dump fuel on it, clip it, uh, that has led to this dramatic escalation. It is remarkable, Caitlin, and let's just remember what the Russians have been saying about this incident. The Russians have been insisting that that fighter jet, the Russian fighter jet, did not ever make contact with that drone. Well, now we can see that the video really does belie that explanation. We're seeing that the fighter jet actually comes up extremely close to the drone. You're watching it right there. Starts releasing a lot of jet fuel, as U.S. officials had said it did. It hits that drone. That is when the camera footage goes out. And then when the camera footage reappears, you can see that the uh, propeller of that drone is damaged. And that is exactly the sequence of events that U.S. officials had laid out, calling this uh, behavior by the pilots extremely reckless and dangerous. I mean, this is just really remarkable. This is something that is so unusual to see, because usually when these fighter jets intercept these drones, they kind of just fly alongside them. And this this fighter jet did do that. It flew beside this drone drone for about 30 to 40 minutes before actually speeding up right next to the drone, as you saw there, and starting to dump jet fuel on it. That is the moment when U.S. officials say they realized that something was really, really wrong here. Uh, As we have seen uh, over the last couple days, U.S. officials have made really, really uh, strict protests to the Russians about this incident, saying that it is completely unacceptable, that it could have endangered the pilots, of course, of that fighter jet, and, of course, that it violates the U.S.'s right to conduct these kinds of surveillance missions over the Black Sea and over international waters and over in, in international airspace. But again, this just really 
uh, it really belies the Russian explanation for what happened here. Again, they had insisted that the uh, Russian fighter jet did not hit that drone, but you can see pretty clearly right after that footage goes out, uh, when the camera goes out, that the propeller is damaged. That really could have only been done uh, by an impact from that plane, Caitlin. Yeah, Natasha, thank you. And Don Pabby, I mean, as we're just watching this video, it, it's remarkable. And I, I want to remind people that yesterday we heard from the Pentagon and they said that they it was clear that the dumping of the fuel was intentional. But, but when it comes to the actual physical contact that they made, they weren't sure whether or not that was intentional. I mean, Millie, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Donna Poppy, was being asked if he believed this was an, an act of war. He said he, he wasn't prepared to go there yet. But these are the kinds of questions they're facing over this video that you're seeing here. And that's what John Kirby said yesterday. They had to be careful because they didn't want this war uh, to escalate into something else. And if you look at this video, there are big questions about whether or not it was intentional because this is only 40 mm -hmm. seconds of something that lasted for 30 to 40, 40 minutes. minutes. So unintentional, 30 to 40 minutes. Very interesting. Caitlin, yeah. stand by. We're going to check back in now with what, it in a moment. Right. With experts on it, CNN military analyst, former member of the Joint Staff at the Pentagon, retired Colonel Cedric Layton is here, also CNN Chief White House Correspondent Phil Mattingly. Thanks both very much for being here. Phil, let me just go to you first. Um, you're reporting. You're usually joining us from the White House. This was a uh, <clears throat> decision by the U.S. military to release the video. And they didn't have to. But you see why. Yes. Right. And I think they knew that the Russians were going to have a different version of events. I think that was uh, both expected and happened very quickly. Um, and it was very clear over the course of the last 36, 48 hours that they both thought this video proved their point and were trying to work through the process of actually getting this out in the public. And I think if you watch this video, and obviously this just broke, we've all been watching it at the same time, it very much backs up what U.S. officials had been telling us over the course of the last several days. Uh, and I think underscores the very palpable concern you heard from U.S. officials that this is a different level of escalation. These intercepts in and of themselves are not rare. That is rare. What you're watching on camera right now is rare and not something that happens often. You've seen the response from the administration, whether it's uh, uh, Secretary of Defense Austin, uh, General Milley, as Caitlin was saying, uh, they've all reached out to their counterparts. The ambassador was taken to the State Department uh, to raise the issues, uh, severe objections. Right. What they are not trying to do is escalate things, but they do want to prove their point. And I think this is what they're doing with this video. Uh, Cedric Layton, I want to bring you in. Um, does this back up the, what the U.S. has been saying, that this was, in fact, indeed intentional? Well, yeah, I think so, Don. Good morning to you. Yeah, it looks like the way the Russian aircraft, the Su-27, is coming into the drone. It's very deliberately going after the drone. And when you see the video and you see it come through right here, you look at the, you know, you look at the way it's appearing in the camera from uh, the Reaper, from the MQ-9, it comes up really close. And then you see uh, the propeller. Uh, it looks normal at this point in time. But when, uh, you know, when you look at the the propeller afterwards, uh, you will see uh, that bent uh, blade, uh, and that is very clearly a deliberate act. Uh, the way this aircraft is coming in uh, to the drone, and you see that bent blade right there, um, you know, clearly something happened, and it had to have been some kind of an impact. And I don't think, uh, you know, while the fuel spill on top of the uh, on top of the aircraft on top of the MQ-9 would have been uh, significant, I don't think it would have caused that damage without there actually being metal on metal. I'm so glad you pointed that out, because if we can pull that picture back up, you actually see that one of those, I'm sorry, I don't have the technical term, is like half the length of the, the one propeller. on the, yeah, the propeller on the opposite side. I, think it's, right, yeah. I think it's amazing, uh, Cedric, that this lasted 30 to 40 minutes. 
Yes. So when these things happen, when an intercept occurs, Poppy, what uh, you know, the aircraft comes up to the the target that it's looking for, and uh, you know, it takes a while to identify the target. Uh, you know, they in this case, the Russian pilots would have said, "Okay, this is a drone." You know, they would have probably identified it as an MQ-9. Uh, they would have then reported back to their ground controllers. Uh, the ground controllers uh, would probably have directed them to uh, go back to circle uh, the drone and uh, they may have also directed them to do these more aggressive passes uh, and that will be key if we can find out whether or not the ground controllers directed the pilots to make these aggressive passes that then would have clearly indicated that uh, this was a, a very deliberate action. Uh, Phil, that drone now thousands of feet um, below uh, sea level <clears throat> and uh, in the Black Sea on its way down, two U.S. officials told CNN that the operators remotely wiped the drone's sensitive software, which mitigates the risk of, of secret material falling into the enemy's hands um, before it crashed in the water. And obviously, they got the video uh, as well. Yesterday, we had um, Kirby on, and he was saying, well, they weren't sure. They did everything to, to try to mitigate that. But now they're saying they did. So I guess if they got this video, they got the information as well and were able to wipe it. And they were able... They- this is part of when you when they utilize these drones, particularly for intelligence collection purposes, they are able to get pretty real time feeds or uh, access to what the information is in the moment. They're and watching they, this in real time. They, they can. Wow. It depends on, on how things are structured. Um, one of the issues that they were concerned about, besides the fact that this is a very expensive <laughs> piece of uh, military property, is just ensuring. Look, we don't have naval assets in the Black Sea. We are not able to send. The U.S. is not able to send their people to try and pick this up. They thought from the, the early stages that this likely fell very, very deep and would have been very difficult to pick up no matter what. But as I think Warren Lieberman, our colleague, reported, they made sure that they could wipe all their systems. Kind of an internal self-destruct without the explosion, if you're trying to think through Mission Impossible type stuff, uh, to ensure that if the Russians, which have made very clear they're trying to find this, trying to pick this up, if they do, what little is left of it will not be of any intelligence value. Yeah. It's just, just, you you say Mission Impossible. I mean, people waking up to this this morning, this looks like out of Top Gun, but it's real and it's between the United States and Russia. And just a danger that it put the, the Russians in, right, those pilots at this point. If you are yes. just tuning in, this is our breaking news here on CNN. It's just almost 610 uh, Eastern time. This newly classified video depicts the, these critical moments, mid-air encounter with the Pentagon said, uh, which the Pentagon said lasted 30 to 40 minutes or about 40 seconds of video, but you see there the interaction between that drone and the Russian fighter jet. We're going to continue on with our breaking news. We thank Colonel Cedric Layton and Phil um, as well. Appreciate that. This morning, we're going to move on and talk about this roller coaster ride in the global banking sector after a large infusion of cash saved a banking giant from going under. Credit Suisse, we're talking about the stock surging more than 30% this morning after it agreed to a $54 billion loan from the Swiss Central Bank. This after it tanked by as much as 30% yesterday after its biggest shareholder said it had no plans to give any more funds to Credit Suisse. This happening almost a week after Silicon Valley Bank, once America's 16th largest bank, collapsed and prompted the federal government to intervene. Straight now to CNN's anchor and chief business correspondent, Christine Romans. Good morning to Good you, morning. Christine. A very busy news morning. Will the $54 billion be enough to reassure investors of Credit Suisse? Well, we have some stability in Credit Suisse shares overnight. I mean, they are moving higher here. Um, but I, I have to warn you, this is a company that is in the midst of a big restructuring. It's got a lot of work to do here, and it's got some clarity. A lot of investors are asking for more clarity um, from Credit Suisse. So Credit Suisse shares are up. If you can pull that up, guys, in the control room, you can see that they are up here. Uh, 
we don't have that. But I will tell you that it is up a little bit, about 20 percent right now. And futures, U.S. stock index futures are, are pretty much mixed here. And I would say searching for stability is what we're talking about here this morning. It has been a week now of pressure in the U.S. banking system and now the international banking system also raising some concerns about just where we are in terms of fragility and banking a year now into all of these interest rate hikes, guys. Christine, just help clarify for people, Credit Suisse is such a larger bank than the two two bank failures here in the U.S. And the reason that it has been struggling so much is very different, but the timing is just terrible. So Credit Suisse has had scandal after scandal uh, for some time now, right? Um, and it is a humongous bank with uh, global implications, lots of counterparty risk, lots of uh, tentacles into the global economy, which is why the Swiss uh, came in there so forcefully to make sure that we know everyone knows that there is a backstop for this, this important, this systemically important bank. Very different than SVB or Signature, which are tiny by comparison, niche banks by comparison, and don't hold any systemic risk. Very Two very different situations, honestly. Um, But it is still raising concerns about the pressure we are seeing in banking overall. I will say I've heard up and down and poppy. We talked about this last night on our bank special. um, The U.S. banking system is solid. The footing is much better today than it was in 2008. But in the near term, we're seeing an awful lot of volatility and fear, Mm -hmm. fear about what's going around in banking. A lot of pressure on some other U.S. regional banks, big names like First Republic that people know and see in their neighborhood. And those are bouncing back overnight, too. So we'll watch to see if they find stability okay. today. Good to hear. Fingers crossed. Thank you, Chrissy Romans. Uh, later in the show, we're going to be joined by Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry. He is the chairman of the Financial Services Committee. Remember, he talked about this Twitter-fueled bank run, what he's doing in Congress to try to keep this from being a contagion. Plus, Fulton County has a third Trump tape, this time pressuring another Georgia official to overturn the 2020 election. We'll tell you who was on that call and what the grand jury just heard. Also, another investigation into uh, another update into another Trump investigation. Stormy Daniels has met with Manhattan prosecutors who are investigating the former president as his former fixer, Michael Cohen, testified yesterday before the grand jury. What we are now learning that's ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Breaking news this morning. We are now learning about another recording of former President Trump pressuring a Georgia state official to overturn his election loss. A source tells CNN this is a phone call of Trump urging Georgia's then House Speaker to call a special session to block President Biden's victory in the state. Members of the special grand jury who are investigating Trump in Fulton County told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution they listened to the recording of the call. One of the jurors telling the newspaper that the House Speaker, quote, basically cut the president off and said, quote, I will do everything in my power that I think is appropriate. The juror said that he basically took the wind out of the sails of the former president. Previously, of course, we only knew of two recordings, the one that pretty much everyone has heard of Trump telling Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to find him enough votes to win. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find... uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. And now we are learning of a second call. CNN's Caitlin Polance is here with us. 
I mean, it's that call was remarkable in and of itself. And now we're learning there's been a second call of him pressuring another state official. What can you tell us? Yeah, actually, a third call. There's two other recordings where he was talking yeah, to the secretary of state's office. But this third call, it was to the House speaker at the time, David Ralston. And what's notable about it is is not just what Trump was saying, similar to how he was saying, speaking to the secretary of state, asking the House uh, to gather for an for an assembly to try and gum up the election. What's notable is what Trump was saying back. We haven't heard the audio of this call yet, so we don't know exactly what was said. But from the reports from these jurors, from what Ralston was saying after the election, uh, he clearly was telling the president at the time, this is not going to work. This isn't something that you could do. So Trump was getting that message at the same time that he and all kinds of people who were supporting him in Washington, Jeffrey Clark at the Justice Department and others, private attorneys, were trying to go directly into Georgia uh, and get the state house to do something in a federal election. Also, the other thing to note about this is pretty significant is that Ralston died in November. So if this were to be charged and this were to become evidence, if Trump were to be charged by the prosecutors in Georgia, Ralston wouldn't be able to be a witness. But the conversation can live on because there's an audio recording of it. The fact that there's recordings of these calls also shows the skepticism, I think, that a lot of these Repo- these officials, Republicans, many of them had getting on the phone with the president then at the time. I think one question when I was looking through this is, why are we just now learning about this third call and this third recording? Well, we're learning about this call because the jurors heard it. Um, we knew that it that it had happened. So Ralston had spoken that he had had a phone call with Trump. I don't think that it was totally known that there was a recording of it, but the jurors heard it. It could become evidence in this case um, if it were to be charged. And what one of the things also that's important about it is that the other calls were to the secretary of state's office. They were about finding votes, investigating the election, this idea, well, we should just look more. This would be direct pressure onto a state legislature. So the person who is leading the state house, and as you note, a Republican who's pushing back. Yeah. So another dynamic to this, a lot of investigations going on with the former president, Caitlin Polenz. Thank you for tracking that. Poppy, just an, an amazing development. It, it really is. That's that. And then another investigation here in New York, a huge day yesterday, as you know, Caitlin, at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in their investigations of Donald Trump's role in hush money payments to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. In a surprise appearance before that grand jury, Daniels met with prosecutors in the DA's office while key witnesses, key witness, I should say, Michael Cohen, testified before the grand jury for the second time in a week with us now, with all the developments, CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed and CNN chief White House correspondent Phil Mattingly. What a, what a huge day. Every time I hear it, it doesn't. But I'm not even talking about I that. I know, the $130,000. That's, I mean, that's our numbers yeah. of the day, 11780 and $130,000. This is what, like the fourth year where those have been numbers of the day at some <laughs> point? It's wild. I can't, first, let's, we'll get to Stormy Daniels, right, and, to, and Michael Cohen. But when you hear that phone call, right, the 11,700, mm-hmm. it's surreal. But then there's another phone call. Like, what gives here? What is going on? How much more is going to come out on this? Well, I mean, there could be additional evidence that the jurors heard, but the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did a great job of getting these interviews and revealing some of this additional evidence. It's so unheard of to get this kind of insight into what's going on with a grand jury, to hear what they were thinking, the evidence that they heard. But one thing we've learned from this investigation, Don, is there's always another call. There's always another official. It's been like that (laughs) for two years. This is Trump. Um, Let's... Talk about what's happening in New York right now, because the fa- this is a very we've had Alvin Bragg on the show, the D.A. This is a very difficult case to successfully prosecute. Part of the reason perhaps why Cy Vance walked away from it. You have to really thread a needle here and 
jump a lot of hurdles to prove Donald Trump's involvement in every step of this. How significant is it that that Michael Cohen talked to the grand jury again yesterday on the same day that Stormy Daniels, Phil, was with prosecutors in his office. The beauty of my role on this panel is I'm not a lawyer. And Paula is. <laughs> I'm recovering, what, but I well, can, we're, I we're can step in. Yeah, we'll work together. I will say, though, from afar, and Paula's been doing great reporting on all this, and know this is super well, um, it is very clear that this is moving very quickly. Obviously, these two individuals who are very important and not unlike the surreal nature of the call that Don was talking about, have just been kind of omnipresent in our lives for several years. It's almost bringing everything back together, and it seems like it's headed in that direction. What it means on the legal side, what it means on the political side, here's the crazy thing. I don't think we know, right? Like, there were very real reasons why it seemed like Alvin Bragg was not going to, or why Cy Vance yeah. didn't end up moving forward, why Alvin Bragg didn't seem like he was going to right. move forward, um, and very real reasons why when you talk to people in the Trump orbit, they feel like this is not their biggest concern. But can, can you explain, though, Alvin Bragg thinks he has a shot at this now. What does he need Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels to prove if he wants to win his case? They're at the crux of it. They he are at the crux of it. He made the payment. It's a bad day for Donald Trump. But the Trump payment's when, not illegal. It's the exactly, other it's stuff. Not about the, it's not about the hush money. It's not about the alleged affair. It's about how this hush money was reimbursed. And yesterday, you know, you have a, an adult film star with whom you had an alleged affair and who people have testified that you paid hush money to to keep quiet about the alleged affair ahead of the campaign in 2016 talking to prosecutors on the same day that your former fixer shows up to talk to the grand jury. This is bad. But again, the question here for prosecutors is whether they believe they can prove that these were improperly reimbursed to Michael Cohen, because he's the one who facilitated the payment to Stormy Daniels. So she's a key witness to talk about the hush money, but he's really at the center of this case. How was this reimbursed? Was it also done to help the campaign? Because then it can be charged differently. But there are a lot of questions, Poppy. This is seven years ago this happened. It's been investigated for five years. years. And just in the past few weeks, we've seen this parade of high-profile witnesses and the sudden uptick in Activity. What is it, like eight or nine witnesses, including Hope Hicks, uh, yep. Kellyanne Conway, yes. a bunch of folks. Um, uh, listen, his, his defense on television is Joe Tacopino. We, we know him as the TV lawyer. It's with Aaron last And thing. you know this is all about politics, right? He's talking yeah. about the politics of it and whether it's going to affect 2024. Can we play this and then a quick reaction from you guys? I think a prosecutor would say, hmm, you know, he's a very democratic prosecutor um, that's been supported by the far left, um, going after perhaps the most far right guy you have out there. Um, and I think he's thinking, if I prosecute him, I take him out of, of candidacy. If they indict him, it will embolden him. I think it will, it, you know, because he will win this case, it will catapult him to the White House. Mr. White House correspondent? Yeah. What do you think? Um, it's probably a decent assessment of the political dynamics, um, not to give anybody too much credit at this stage. Look. It is very early on in a primary process. We have no idea what's going to happen next. And the people that you think are definitely going to be top-tier candidates may flame out before Iowa even happens in terms of the caucuses. The reality is, though, when it comes to the very, very sticky supporters in the Republican primary of President Trump, this certainly isn't going to make them walk away. The bigger question is, does it make the, if, if President Trump, could, former President Trump can get 30% or 35% in the primary, does something like this drive the 5 to 6% he would need to really get things over the top away? I, I don't, I mean, if you're a Republican and you know Alvin Bragg and you know what Alvin Bragg kind of made his public posture in the lead up to taking over the role as DA, I don't think that this is something that dissuades you. I, I just, nobody that I've talked to whether they like the former president or don't on the Republican side of things, thinks this is the thing that changes minds. If anything, it just brings it back to the forefront that Democrats don't like him or, or something like that. It's easy to message, as you saw last night yeah, on the show. 
And why now, right? Because right. there could be additional evidence that they've uncovered a new witness. We haven't seen that. And there are a lot of questions about whether he is bowing to political pressure. And that is not what we want to see in our justice system, prosecuting people for political gain. With all the investigations happening, we could do this until, uh, what is it, CNN tonight, to, you know, at 11 o'clock. We could have we could, Let's you know, not. Without commercial breaks, we could be I having this conversation. I love you guys, but I need a nap. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Paula. Appreciate that. Straight ahead, though, we should tell you that Michael Cohen is going to join us. We're going to get his side of the story on what went down during his second grand jury testimony. I believe it is his first in-person interview. I've seen on the phone, um, maybe on another network, but he's going to be here in person. Also, half a million, half million Israelis taking to the streets in protest against Benjamin Netanyahu's government. Why there are concerns this morning that Israel could be on the brink of a civil war. We're live in Jerusalem. We're also following the breaking news. See the moment caught on camera when a Russian fighter jet took down a U.S. drone over the Black Sea. It is stunning. Our team is standing by at the Pentagon with the latest. This morning, nationwide protests continue across Israel over the government's plans to drastically reform the judiciary there, strip away power from the Supreme Court. Opponents say that would undermine completely any checks and balances in Israel. Protesters even painted a red line on the road leading to Israel's Supreme Court. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu just rejected a compromise proposal from Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, who is warning that this country is on the brink of civil war. You cannot overstate the significance of this in the region and for the world. Our Hadass Gold is live in Jerusalem. Hadass, you're in the middle of the protest. What can you tell us? Yeah, Poppy, we are actually at a student protest at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, one of dozens of protests today, what's being deemed a day of disruption. It's been almost three months long now of hundreds of thousands of Israelis taking to the streets on a regular basis to protest against these, this judicial overhaul. I have to say it's probably one of the longest and largest such demonstrations in Israeli history. The protesters here today, they are young people. They say that they are worried about what this judicial overhaul would mean for the future, for the protection of minorities, for the independence of the judiciary, because this overhaul would allow the parliament to overturn Supreme Court decisions and would drastically change how judges are chosen. But supporters of the reform say that it's needed to help rebalance the branches of government. And as you noted, the Israeli President Isaac Herzog laying out a compromise proposal warning that the country is potentially on the brink of civil war because of the divisiveness over this issue. Take a listen. I'm going to use a phrase I haven't used before, an expression that there is no Israeli who is not horrified when he hears it. Whoever thinks that the real civil war of human lives is a limit that we will not reach has no idea. Precisely now, in the 75th year of the State of Israel, the abyss is within touching distance. Now, Netanyahu, as you noted, had flatly rejected this compromise proposal, saying it doesn't do enough to fix the problems. The question now is what will he and his government do next? Will they push forward with the rapid speed at which they want to push through this massive judicial overhaul? Or will there be at some point some sort of softening, some sort of compromise that will help tamp down these fervent emotions? Guys, there's a bus behind you. Thank I just want you to be able to move to the side. I got worried about you. Thank you, Hadas, very much for that reporting literally in the middle of all of it. It is stunning to see, hear the Israeli president say that. Thank you very, very much. Don. The Republican-led state of Texas has announced one of the largest school takeovers in U.S. history. 
The state government is taking over public schools in the city of Houston, where Democrats are in power. State officials say the school district is failing, but Democrats say the move is political. Adrian Broadus is in Houston with more now. It is the largest school district in Texas, and now it's facing one of the largest school takeovers in the country's history. This is a crime. I want to yes. go on record to say this is a crime. Yes, it yes. is. It, it's a crime against public education, and it's a crime against the Houston community. On Wednesday, the state commissioner of education said the state will take over the Houston Independent School District, quote, in the next couple of months. Some are doubtful about what is coming. If I were parents, I'd be terrified. TEA does not have a history of fixing any schools. The state intervening under a state law that allows it to remove the locally elected school board, claiming the district is failing to meet certain state standards. There has been a long time failure by HISD and the victims of that failure are the students. The state will now take responsibility for the district's 180,000 students and 25,000 employees. You cannot run school districts and cities and counties from Austin, Texas. The state deserves an F on how they have handled this process up to this point. It will also replace the district superintendent, who sounded optimistic about the future days ago. I stand here as the superintendent of HISD to say we are not just overcoming those challenges, but together we are building a school district that is delivering on its promises again. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner said the takeover is troubling but not unexpected. It comes after a lengthy court battle between the district and the education commissioner, which ended in January with the judge ruling in the commissioner's favor. The state teachers union came out strongly against Wednesday's action, saying its members hope for the best. For their sake, I have no choice at this point but to wish them well and hope that they succeed. But make no mistake, we will watch every move. As local leaders promise to continue the fight against a takeover they believe is unnecessary. I have not conceded. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. I do not believe that this Thank is you. the end. And I still believe that the people in Houston, yes. Texas, with their children, can prevail and yes. maintain control of yes. their schools. Yes. I still yes. believe it. And according to the district's website, more than 90% of the student population identifies as non-white. The question now is, will this state takeover help the district improve academically? Don, Poppy, and Caitlin. Adrian brought us in Houston. Thank you, Adrian. Caitlin. Yeah, thank you for that. Also this morning, Senator Tina Smith here on Capitol Hill is opening up about her journey with depression, what she wants to share with others who might also be struggling. talk about something this morning that has been affecting so many Americans ever since the COVID-19 pandemic put it at the forefront, especially millions of Americans from all walks of life suffer from depression and mental illness. That includes also members of Congress right here on Capitol Hill. Some lawmakers are being more open about their struggles in recent weeks and months, like Senators John Fetterman and Tina Smith. It's raising a hope here on Capitol Hill that the stigma around mental health is actually shifting. CNN's congressional correspondent, Lauren Fox, sat down with Senator Smith to talk about her experience. Here's that interview. 
These millions of Americans deserve our help. Senator Tina Smith never expected to be on the Senate floor talking about her own experiences with depression. When it started for me, I thought I was just having a bad day or really a series of bad days. But in 2019, the then freshman senator was working on a bill aimed at expanding access to mental health. The more she worked, the more she thought about revealing what she wasn't saying. I had my own experience with depression when I was in college and then when I was older, um, you know, young mom, and it started to feel um, just less than honest to not just put it out there. I realized that there was power in me telling the story, me particularly, me being a United States senator, um, somebody who supposedly has everything all together all the time. For Smith, the depression both times caught her by surprise, saying it felt like the color was draining out of her world. She lost interest in activities she loved and withdrew from friends and family. The thing that's so treacherous about um, depression in particular is that you think that the thing that is wrong with you is you. Smith got help. In her 30s, her therapist gave her a diagnosis. You're, you're clinically depressed, that's my diagnosis. I think that you'd benefit from medication um, to help you. And I was like, I don't wanna do that because then that's not gonna be me inside my brain. Did it take time for oh, you yeah. to accept the idea of medication? Yeah, it did, it did take time. And again, you know, medication works for some people, not for others, everybody is in a different position. But um, the it, it did very much help me to um, adjust my brain chemistry so that I could rediscover the things that made me happy. Mental illness affects one in five Americans every year. But for politicians, disclosing a battle with mental illness has long carried political risks. Congratulations, Senator. It's why Senator John Fetterman's announcement in February he was seeking treatment for clinical depression has started to change the conversation. Every time a um, somebody like John or me um, is open about their own experiences with um, mental illness or you know mental health challenges, it um, it just breaks down that wall a little bit more about people saying, oh, it's possible to be open and honest and not have the whole world come crashing down on you. It hasn't always been that way. In 1972, Thomas Eagleton dropped off George McGovern's presidential ticket after it was revealed he'd undergone treatment for depression and received electroshock therapy. This decision is one of the most heartrending. Former Representative Patrick Kennedy, now a leading advocate on mental health, struggled with addiction and bipolar disorder in Congress. For years, he said he worked to cover it up. When I was in Congress, uh, I did everything I could to keep everybody from finding out that I needed help. Lawmakers are hopeful that the stigma around mental illness may finally be shifting. There are consequences to the things you say and talk about, but uh, I think in a circumstance like this that it's... Um, you know, it helps the conversation. I think it helps people realize and understand uh, the impact that this, uh, that this disease has on, on people all across the country. And it's been decades since Senator Smith dealt with her depression, Caitlin, but she felt like she should talk about it. And since she's done it, she said constituents come up to her all the time and want to have a conversation with her. She said one woman came up to her at the airport and said, it helped me so much to hear it coming 
from you. So that tells you why she wanted to share a story. And so amazing to see that video from 1972 and just to see how, how differently we do talk about it and why it is so important to have these conversations. Lauren, that was a, a great interview. Thank you for doing Thank that. You. Thank you. Don, uh, obviously such an interesting conversation here, an interesting interview is, you know, something that is important for lawmakers to talk about. We've talked about it with Senator Fetterman uh, multiple times. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. It is an important, not only conversation, but it's important that we take action in doing something about depression because so many people suffer from it and we should take the stigma off of that. Totally, right? totally. Very good. We are, yeah, thank you, Caitlin and Lauren. Great piece. We are also following this breaking news this morning. The U.S. military just released this stunning video. It's the moment a Russian fighter jet ultimately took down a U.S. drone over the Black Sea. Okay, uh, I'm just... <laughs> it says in the teleprompter, the huge, puffy, white moon suits... It's true. ...are out. Look at that. Is he dancing? Yeah. NASA revealing brand new gear. Astronauts will wear to the moon. We're gonna. It's very fashionable. I'm gonna speak to an astrophysicist about. Everyone is cracking up here about their revamp. Let's just take in this video for a second. All right now. Were you better work? More CNN this morning to come after the break. A giant leap for mankind. That's probably one of the most famous quotes I would think in ever. Is that? I think you are correct. (laughs) (laughs) But one that was kind of tough to make because of that bulky spacesuit, right? Just look at how spacesuits have evolved since the 60s, (laughs) from tight and shiny silver to the spacesuits used on the moon to the ones used today on spacewalks. But now, as astronauts prepare to go back to the moon, Spacewear is getting an update. Seriously, the goal, no more rigid hopping on the lunar surface the way Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin did 50 years ago. Check out the range of motion of this new spacesuit. It was just unveiled. There it is. Deep squats, no problem. Good range of motion, you bet. And does it fit women? Well, yes. That's a big deal. Because NASA actually had to cancel a planned all-female spacewalk in 2019 because there weren't enough spacesuits to fit women. That is insane. Let's talk about it with that astrophysicist and professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia, Jana Levin. Jana, thank Hi. you. Thanks for having very me. Very much. Always fun to be here. Um, to we were talking you. about they cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes, they're very expensive. I mean, the space suits that they have now in the ISS are Apollo era. They're part of the original 20 or so space suits. There's only four that are still in use, and they're all on the space station. Yeah. Sorry. They're so very expensive. The you, you don't make them easily. Yeah. They're I not mean, off the rack. It looks, like a right. Jiffy, it looks like Jiffy Pop, right? Remember? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, my gosh. Look at, the thing is, though, yeah. I, you know what I'm wondering? This is weird. We'll get to the... They're black, though. Buzz, yeah. And if you're in outer space... Those are not going to be black in outer space. Black. Oh. It's an excellent question. So they, they look like that right now in part possibly to show off the Axiom Space okay. uh, logo, but um, they will be white in space uh, because they need to reflect the light. You're absolutely right. You'd get really hot out there in a black suit. Okay, so we went through the third image. Can you go to image number three? Oh my gosh, I was not <laughs> built for this, people. That is the newest suit that NASA is now unveiling. Is that right? No, that's no, not. No, that was the that black was the and the orange one. So we are only button. seeing them. Oh my gosh. Okay, <laughs> so that is the newest copy. suit. That's, is that the newest suit? No, we have to go back to the... It's, oh my gosh. It's covered in the black. 
That's like, this it. is it. And so it's covered in the black with the orange and blue trimming, but that's a covering over many, many layers. The suit itself has m multiple layers. But there's and been so innovation. Innovations in fabric and, and yeah. that kind of thing and, yeah. and protective layering, right? Can we talk Absolutely. About and they're fragile and they're expensive. So you want to cover them while you're testing and using them. Can we talk about something else since yeah. we have you here? Because yeah. I'm obsessed with the James Webb telescope yeah. and all the images we uh -huh. got to see in the last year from right. it. There's something really interesting. It recently discovered a star in a unique phase of its life called Wolf Rayet. Yes. It, this is gorgeous. Yes. Why is it this is so special? Gorgeous. So it's a very brief phase in a very heavy star's life. They burn very fast. And over about a million years, it'll go through this phase, which sounds like a long time, but our sun will live to be 10 billion years old. So this is a very brief phase in comparison. And uh, it's blowing off a lot of its outer atmosphere. So about 10 times the mass of the sun is in this cloud, this nebula mm. that you're seeing around the star. The star is behind there, and it's about 30 times the mass of the sun still. So it's very big, it's very hot, it's burning really furiously right now, and there's a lot of these stellar winds. And the importance of it is that's how we get heavy elements back into the universe, and those are the building blocks for life. So we know that we're, we're not first-generation material. We have to be processed through stars to make carbon and oxygen, to make the elements for water, and to make us. So this is part of how that gets back out into the universe. Jenna, when you look at all the innovations, of yeah. the technology, mm -hmm. the, you know, telescopes, the mm -hmm. spacesuits, and whatever, yeah. it is just, it's, the, we, you know, another saying, yeah. the future is now, we're living in the future. Yeah, I mean, James Webb is such a remarkable experiment because so many people were involved. It's totally international. And you can see the kind of steady and tried and true commitment yeah. of this international community. I mean, if we all operated like that collaboratively right? um, with one goal in mind, it's quite amazing what they did. The largest instrument to go to space, yeah. unpacked. We all watched it unpack over that weeks. It's quite stunning. Thank yeah. you. Thank Always you so much. What a time to, to be, be alive. Here. Yeah. I know. I'm that was absolutely my quote when interviewed by the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> what you. a time to be alive. Thank you, Thank Professor. Thank you so much. Very much. Back now to our breaking news. Moments ago, the U.S. military released footage of a Russian fighter jet forcing down an American drone over the Black Sea. We'll talk about it ahead. new video released by the U.S. military showing the moment that a Russian fighter jet harassed a U.S. drone over the Black Sea, ultimately forcing it down. This was also part of a pattern. A senior Russian official promised that the Russians would try to recover what they could from that drone. Kremlin spokesperson saying today that relations between the two countries are at their, quote, lowest point. We don't want to see any escalation. There's no need for that. Georgia investigators have another reporting of Trump pressuring election officials to overturn the election. This third phone call was to the Speaker of the House of the Georgia State House. What this would show me as a prosecutor is that Donald Trump had a very specific strategy and approach for how he was going to go about pressuring these state officials. Donald Trump wanted it done, and he went person by person to try and get it done. Fears over the broader banking industry are now global. Swiss Central Bank saying it's ready to bail out Credit Suisse with more funds if necessary. That sent shares plunging to record lows and markets tumbling around the world. The U.S. banking system is solid. The footing is much better today than it was in 2008. World renowned DJ David Guetta recreating Eminem's voice for an AI-generated track. 
This is the future rave sound. I'm getting lost in an underground. Do you think there needs to be regulation, federal regulation, around artificial intelligence? I like that it's very free and open right now, but at some point, yes. March Madness is underway. 64 teams have their eyes on the final four. 15 seed Princeton made it to the tournament. The Princeton fans still have school spirit. Check out some of the signs they made for the game. The first one says, hey ref, don't you know who our fathers are? This one says, ease up or we'll collapse another bank. And you are We begin. Good morning, everyone. Don and I are here. Caitlin's in D.C. And we do begin with breaking news this morning. We are now seeing that video of a Russian fighter jet hitting a U.S. drone and forcing it to crash into the Black Sea. Caitlin, it is so stunning. It looks like something out of Hollywood, but this is real and it's between Russia and the United States. Walk us through what we're seeing. It is remarkable to see just with clarity what exactly we have been hearing from officials in recent days now to actually lay our eyes on this video. This is video that has just been released this morning by the U.S. military's European command. And this is what they've been talking about. This situation and encounter that we are told lasted for over 30 minutes. As you see a Russian fighter jet here approaching a U.S. drone. That's where the camera is. U.S. officials say that is when it dumped fuel onto the drone. Those were several steps that they were taken. U.S. officials have speculated about maybe trying to disable some of the sensors that were on that drone. Of course, what this also confirms and what a senior administration official has just told our colleague, MJ Lee, is that this does confirm there was physical contact between that Russian fighter jet and the U.S. drone. Of course, it clipped the propeller. That is why U.S. officials later had to force that drone down. CNN's Natasha Bertrand is live at the Pentagon as this video has just been released. I mean, Natasha, officials are telling MJ that this does confirmed impact happened, which the Russians had been denying. Exactly right, Caitlin. So this video really does contradict what the Russians have been saying repeatedly over the last several days, which is that the fighter jet never actually made physical contact with that drone over the Black Sea. Well, we can see here in the video that Russian fighter jet approaching the drone, releasing that jet fuel. And then after the video cuts out because of that moment of uh, collision, you can see afterwards that that propeller is actually damaged. And that is what U.S. officials have been saying over the last several days, is that really that propeller could have only been damaged by an impact uh, from that plane. And so this video really reinforces what the U.S. has been saying about this. And the Russians uh, have repeatedly denied that there was any kind of uh, foul play here. They say that they approached the plane and that ultimately they kind of went back and landed safely. Well, obviously that is not what happened here. And the U.S. is likely releasing this video now because they want to prove their version of events. Now, we should note that we reported just last night that senior Russian defense officials did actually order the pilots to move forward and harass this drone. So this was not some rogue behavior by a couple of Russian pilots here. This was actually a direct order from the Russian Ministry of Defense, again, kind of contradicting the Russian narrative of events here. Now, it remains unclear whether this uh, drone is going to be recovered in the Black Sea. It is a, The Black Sea, uh, where it landed, is about is very deep. It is four to 5,000 feet uh, of water. And so the Russians have actually gone to that crash site and they are going to try to recover it, uh, but the U.S. saying it could be very difficult. However, we are told that the U.S. did take steps to wipe the software from that drone as it kind of uh, plummeted into the Black Sea there. So there's nothing really of intelligence value that the Russians could obtain anyway, Caitlin.
Yeah, we'll wait to see if they do recover it first. Natasha Bertrand, thank you. And Don and Poppy, I mean, just to give a sense of how remarkable this event is, Defense Secretary Austin and Chairman Milley of the Joint Chiefs of Staff both spoke with their respective Russian counterparts yesterday in the Russian military for the first time in months about this incident specifically. Uh, we're going to continue to follow that. Uh, I'm going to bring in now senior military analyst and the former member of the Joint Staff at the Pentagon, retired Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, Colonel, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Listen, there's so many questions around this. First of all, they said that the, the, the Russians are saying it wasn't intentional. It is intentional if you're dumping fuel on it. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, probably not the physical contact because that puts the, the, the pilots in that Russian jet in extreme danger. You're right, Don. That's exactly it. The Russian pilots were clearly told, uh, you know, based on Natasha's reporting and what we're seeing with our own eyes right now, uh, to harass this drone. Uh, and they were told to, to probably try to bring it down. Uh, but he got a little bit too close, the Russian pilot did. And that was what, when you start seeing uh, the propeller uh, in the after, after picture, it actually shows a bent uh, blade. And that bent blade is clear evidence that uh, the Russian plane actually hit, made, a physical, made physical contact with the MQ-9 Reaper. It is rare that we see this kind of video and this, this kind of military action, right, that we get the video of it. Um, this is not a normal military interception. No, it's not. Now, what is normal, Don, is going up and taking a look at, uh, you know, something that you don't know is out there and it's close to your borders. So, you know, any country uh, that has an air force would probably do something like that, but they'll take a look at it, uh, decide whether or not it's a threat and then move on from there. Uh, this drone was not a threat to the Russians. It was in international, over international waters, over international airspace, and it was actually working on a reconnaissance mission, which is allowed by international law. And the way the Russians reacted to it uh, was clearly extremely aggressive. Uh, it, uh, you know, it's obviously right off the coast of Crimea, and it's uh, you know right there where uh, all the activity is happening, or at least a lot of the activity is happening in the Ukraine war. Yeah. And if you see the image that's up now, you look at the propeller. The propeller is intact in one, and then all of a sudden, uh, the propeller is clipped. Uh, and damage in another. After seeing what happened to the drone, there's the image right there, and that damage. Did the military have any options to save this drone? Unlikely, uh, you know, because of the airworthiness of a drone is really dependent on its propellers being intact and being uh, you know, formed in their original way. Uh, so if a bent propeller is involved in something like this, it can really damage uh, the ability to steer the drone properly and uh, would potentially result in accidents happening. So from a safety of flight perspective alone, it was important to, to uh, move the drone out of the area. And one of the ways to do that, of course, is to crash it. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing not the original question, but it was either um, Caitlin or Phil who said that uh, General Milley was asked whether this was an act of aggression or uh, an act of war. What do you say to that? It was definitely an act of aggression. I, I think uh, calling it an act of war is going a bit too far, Don. Uh, but, you know, if this continues, if this type of behavior continues, then uh, you know, the ante is clearly being, being raised and uh, we could be talking other language very shortly. Uh, but at the present time, this is an act of aggression and it should be treated as such.
Uh, this is what John Kirby was saying from the White House yesterday about the possible escalation and that did not want that to happen. But this appears to show that it could happen, right? Considering this confirms what the United States has been saying about what happened with this drone. Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you very much. We have big developments this morning in two different investigations into former President Trump, the election interference probe in Georgia and the Stormy Daniels hush money investigation here in New York. We are now learning there's another recording of former President Trump pressuring another Georgia official to help overturn his election loss. This time, it's a phone call with the state's Republican House Speaker. And here in New York City, Stormy Daniels met with prosecutors yesterday as they near the end of that investigation. Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, also finished testifying yesterday before the grand jury. That makes two appearances from him in a week. Cohen will join us right here on CNN This Morning in the 8 o'clock hour. Let's get caught up on all of this with our senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed. Wow, so much in just a few days. Right. Even by Donald Trump's standards, yesterday was a wild day in court for him and related to court proceedings in Georgia. We had these members of the special grand jury revealing these incredible details of the investigation. And then here in New York, you had his former alleged mistress mm -hmm. and his fixer both talking to prosecutors. Two investigations into former President Donald Trump heating up with possible indictments coming down soon. In New York, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office speaking on Wednesday to two key witnesses as part of its investigation into hush money payments made to adult film star Stormy Daniels. My position is that at the end of the day, Donald Trump needs to be held accountable for his dirty deeds if, in fact, that's the way that the facts play out. Trump's former fixer and personal attorney, Michael Cohen, concluded a second day of testimony Wednesday. And Daniel's attorney tweeted that she also answered prosecutors' questions and has agreed to make herself available as a witness. The investigation is at a critical juncture after the district attorney's office invited Trump to testify last week. Trump's legal team says he will not testify and they're proclaiming his innocence with one of his lawyers making this striking prediction if his client is indicted. I think it will, will ultimately embolden him, embolden his supporters and, and, and give him more strength because he will be proven to be wrongly accused. But on the other hand, who in their right mind wants to be indicted and charged falsely with a crime? Nobody. Over in Fulton County, Georgia, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is reporting the grand jury there heard a recording of a conversation between Trump and the late former Georgia House Speaker David Ralston. In the recording, Trump is pushing for the speaker to call a special session to overturn Joe Biden's win in the state. One of the jurors recalled Ralston basically cut the president off, telling Trump, I will do everything in my power that I think is appropriate. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution spoke with five jurors who served on the grand jury investigating Trump's actions in Georgia after the 2020 election. One of those jurors says they were presented testimony about a meeting then-Senator and Trump ally David Perdue had with Republican Governor Brian Kemp in December 2020, where Kemp was also urged to convene a special session to challenge Biden's election win. You know what I'm saying, or Really extraordinary insight into the grand jury process there. This is not the kind of information we usually get, particularly before there's been any sort of indictment. No. Now, we know this grand jury has recommended multiple indictments. And if you talk to the former president's legal team, they are concerned about Georgia in terms of charges being brought. They are not, however, they say, worried about a conviction. 
Paula Reed, fascinating. Wild, as you said, even. I don't know how you uh, keep for up Trump with, standards. <laughs> with all of these. It's a lot of coffee. Yeah. Brainiac, <laughs> Brainiac coffee. over here. Thank, Thank you, Paula. Paula. Caitlin. All right, we're back here in Washington. The FAA held its first emergency summit in 14 years. Industry experts are warning as they were gathered here in Washington alongside Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who is calling on them to help figure out the root causes of the recent uptick, uptick that we've seen and been reporting on in aviation incidents. This comes after a series of near misses involving commercial flights at U.S. airports across the nation. The FAA is investigating seven incidents alone just since the start of 2023. CNN's Pete Montine is covering all of this and joins us now. Pete, emergency summit, the first time they've had one in 14 years. What were the main takeaways from it? Well, you know, what's so interesting about this, Caitlin, is the last time they had an emergency summit like this by the FAA was back in 2009 following a fatal crash of a Colgan airliner. In this case, in these seven incidents, these dramatic runway incursions, there have been no fatalities. So we're essentially talking about crashes that did not happen. The FAA, though, is vowing that this is just the start of a sweeping safety review here in Washington. After this meeting, it announced no major changes to policy, no single root cause, but it is trying to whittle down and aim at the possible causes here. It says that in this readout of these closed-door sessions, there's going to be an examination of the data behind these dramatic runway incursions. They're going to look at new technology that could be put in place at airports that could potentially alert air traffic controllers to collisions that are about to happen. They're also going to look at pilot and crew fatigue and stress. And that is something that Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg told me about in an exclusive interview yesterday during this safety summit. He said there is a kind of rust and this really might go back to airlines struggling to rebound from the pandemic. Listen. What we're finding is that uh, pilots, ground crews, and controllers alike seem to be experiencing this uptick. Uh, some have described it as a kind of rust, uh, but that, that needs to turn into a very concrete diagnosis and specific action steps. The head of the controllers union, the air traffic controllers union, NATCA, and I also spoke after the end of this session, and he told me that there is one other problem in the mix here, something that's new that we're hearing about, a shortage of air traffic controllers, not only in towers, but other air traffic control facilities. He says the onus is really on the FAA and on Congress to find the money to up staffing to avoid these near collisions in the future, Caitlin. Yeah, I mean, we'll see when those changes go into effect. Clearly something everyone is watching. Pete Muntine, thank you. And for our viewers on CNN Primetime, you're going to be able to go inside the cockpit for a closer look, actually, at America's aviation problems. Kate Baldwin is going to host new CNN Primetime episode of Flight Risk. That is live tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern on CNN. Don, Poppy, I know both of you will be watching that very closely, just I, as I will. I will have it on, but I'll be looking like this because I do have a very healthy fear <laughs> both of flying, especially what's going on in the skies right now. Thank you, Caitlin. We'll get back just shortly. Uh, this just in a scene ahead of Janet Yellen's testimony this morning. The Treasury Secretary is stressing to Americans, bank deposits are safe. Bank deposits are safe. That's what she's saying. This is the Dow. Dow Futures and Credit Suisse are both down at this hour. Next, we're going to speak with Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry, the chairman of the Financial Services Committee, what he is doing in Congress to keep the fallout from spreading to other banks. <clears throat> More CNN this morning to come after the break. All 
All right, welcome back this morning here on Capitol Hill. I, uh, all eyes are going to be on Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen because she is going to be testifying before the Senate Finance Committee in the wake of the sudden collapse of two U.S. banks. Supposed to be a hearing mainly focused on the president's budget, but of course this is going to be a major topic. And moments ago, CNN got an early preview of her prepared remarks. We are told that Secretary Yellen is expected to tell the Senate committee that, quote, our banking system remains sound. Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there when they need them. So joining us now for perspective on this is Republican Congressman from North Carolina, Patrick McHenry, who is the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee and therefore has been incredibly busy ever since, you know, for the last week or so. I think the main question people have for you today, given your position, is are there going to be congressional hearings on this? Uh, sure, there will be. And the fact that, um, you know, I've been in consistent communication with uh, the regulators and the administration uh, for the last week, um, you know, I think I have a, a pretty good understanding of how they've responded. I think they've responded well. Uh, but we have to get to the bottom of why this happened, uh, sort of the who, what, when, where, why and how of, of this. And, um, and we're underway on developing a plan for hearings and, and witnesses and things of that sort, um, which is natural in the, event, in the event and circumstances we've just been presented with. When it comes to the why of how or the how of how this happened, we have heard from some lawmakers who have been very critical of the 2018 rollback of some of the regulations on these banks. You voted for it. You were very positive about it back then, saying that you believed it helped small banks. Do you still stand by that vote? Yes. Um, And the evidence they use uh, to justify that is their political belief that they didn't like the bill in 2018. It has nothing to do with the contents of the legislation. And in fact, there's been a recent study that had uh, that rollback not happened, the quote unquote rollback not happened, this bank run would have still happened. Uh, So what they're doing, what most of the politicians at Capitol Hill are doing, are dining on their typical book of business and resorting to that as the answer and solution for what just happened. It is my responsibility as chair of the Financial Services Committee to get to the bottom of what happened. Then we can decide on the path forward. And there are a number of different theories here. There's a management uh, failure, a supervisory or regulatory failure, uh, a failure of regulation, a failure of law. And then the bigger question that we're all experiencing, the average American family is experiencing, and anyone who owns anything is experiencing, is inflation and the impact of inflation at rising rates. All of those theories are simply theories at this state, and we have to get to the bottom of actually what happened. Do you think this ends up with new legislation? We'll see. Uh, But for me to say uh, a couple days into this uh, that it requires new legislation is uh, very presumptuous. Um, But that's actually what legislators always try to respond with is legislation. It's my goal to actually figure out what happened before we actually jump to conclusions. So you think it'll be time before you get there? We've heard something from Senator John Tester saying that he believes regulators should try to claw back some of the bonuses that SVB executives got before the bank went into a tailspin. Do you agree that that should happen? Well, we need to see what happened first before you can make that determination. What we do know is management of these two banks that that, uh, failed have been fired. Um, And that's what happens in a bank failure. That is uh, as a force of law that we have. If you have to come in and backstop the depositors, like the Federal Deposit Insurance Company has done for 90 years in this country, um, you lose your job. 
um, the bank executives lose their jobs. So as a consequence of this, if we see malfeasance, if we see mismanagement, uh, we have a solid determination of that, then the consequences should be on the executives of these firms. Okay, so that is on the table. Overall, we've kind of heard this argument based on the actions the administration took, which Secretary Yellen will be asked about today, that the U.S. is moving closer to a nationalized bank system because of this response, now that all these depositors are being insured. Do you agree with that? I think that's a horrible outcome. Uh, as a result of the Dodd-Frank Act and the failures of the 2008-2009 financial crisis, uh, we have uh, larger banks and we have fewer of them. Um, that is problematic for our financial system. It's, uh, it's problematic for competition among financial products and consumer choice. Uh, so I think it's important that we think about community and smaller banks and regional banks and make sure that they're able to exist on a going forward basis. Yeah, small banks are really important. I I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. I saw how they played a role in the pandemic and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But are, you're saying it's a, a horrible outcome, but are, is that happening is what I'm asking you. Well, absent us uh, making assurances to the American people, they don't need to move their accounts which the action over the weekend was designed to do, uh, that would be the, out, the, the inevitable outcome. Uh, so I think in that respect, uh, the movement of money between financial institutions tells me that we have a flaw in the design of our law and regulation at this point in time. I want to ask you also, given your position as the lead Republican on the Financial Services Committee, the debt ceiling. Do you still favor a clean debt ceiling with no strings attached to it? Yes. What I said in December, I still hold, hold by. Uh, but they're not votes to do what I want to do. And so I'm working with my colleagues to uh, seek to come up with a legislative solution to this uh, very challenging situation. Uh, I, would, I would encourage the administration to have more active outreach to uh, Capitol Hill, more so than they've done. Uh, so far, they've not done uh, really anything other than the speaker meet with the president one time. And I think that is uh, that is not a confidence building exercise, frankly. They say that they want to see the Republicans budget. Do Republicans have a budget yet? Well, they're a month late on producing their budget. The first thing we have to do is analyze their budget and see the validity and the underlying um, assumptions that they've made. And then we're going to make our, uh, our uh, decision about offering our budget. I would likewise like to see the Senate Democrat majority produce a budget uh, for, for themselves as well. We'd like to see whether or not uh, House and Senate Republicans support the Biden budget. That would be also an encouraging sign. Do you have a timeline of when we'll see the Republican budget? I'm not in charge of timelines. I'm merely a committee chair. And so uh, we have to uh, come up with our policy response, but first understand their policy initiatives they put forward to Capitol Hill. Yeah, well, they unveiled theirs last week. I know Republicans they have a unveiled a budget. Yeah. They did not un unveil a debt ceiling offer. Well, they said that has to be negotiations, right? Because they want it to be what you want it to be, a clean debt ceiling with no strings attached. But some of your Republican colleagues say we want X, Y and Z attached. Yeah, those, there are not votes for that. And I'm convinced there are not votes in the Senate uh, for a clean debt ceiling increase. If they wish to do that, they could do it today. We'll see when they do do it. Congressman Patrick McHenry, thank you for joining us this Great morning. To be with really you. important topic. So there's a lot going on, and you have a lot to get back to. So thank you. Thank you. All right, Don and Poppy, uh, you heard that there. We're talking about you know what is going to happen here today. We've got that hearing with Secretary Yellen. A lot of questions lawmakers still have about the fallout from SVB and the collapse of that bank and others. Yeah, they could do it today, but Caitlin, you know that's not how it works in Washington D.C. It is interesting <laughs> to see a high-ranking Republican on such an important committee um, agreeing with the White House yeah. on that, but saying there's not enough enough votes to do it on a clean debt ceiling bill. Caitlin, thank you. We'll go back to you very soon. The high-stakes hearing yesterday 
in Texas on medication abortion. A group of governors now hoping to secure access to it in their state. The letter they wrote, we're going to be joined by one who signed it. That is the governor of Maryland, Wes Moore. He's here live. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. As soon as possible. That is how fast a judge in Texas says he wants to rule on a very high-stakes case over an FDA-approved medication abortion pill. Judge Matthew Kaczmarek has made those remarks. He said them yesterday after he heard arguments that could decide the fate of that pill, which is called Mifepristone. It is a medication abortion drug. It has been available for more than 20 years. Anti-abortion groups are suing to overturn the FDA's approval of it. They want a preliminary injunction requiring the FDA to withdraw or suspend its approval while the lawsuit plays out. The judge, who was a Trump appointee, questioned the FDA's safety process and appeared open to the anti-abortion group's challenge, but he also questioned whether there's any precedent for the court to overturn a long-approved drug. If the judge rules in favor of the challenge and grants an injunction, it could disrupt access to the abortion pill, even in states where abortion is legal. And that's really key. So this is why, earlier this week, Democratic governors in 14 states wrote this letter, and they asked the heads of a number of big national pharmacies whether they plan to continue dispensing the abortion pill as well as on any other actions to safeguard access to reproductive health care. We're joined now by one of the co-authors of that letter, Maryland Governor Wes Moore. Good morning, Governor. Good morning. Good there, morning. Thank you. There is a chance that uh, Judge Kaczmarek could issue an injunction. What would that mean for the people of Maryland? You know, the, the thing that really gets me about the argument is we're talking about a drug that has been on the market for 20 years. There, there's no scientific basis uh, for, for this challenge. This is a purely political challenge. And, and the thing that we've said for people in the state of Maryland is as long as I am governor, uh, we are going to make sure that Maryland is a safe haven for abortion rights, full stop. And that means that we are going to use every tool at our disposal to include on my first day in office, uh, you know, we released three and a half million dollars of previously withheld funds to support abortion training clinics and making sure that people have not just the uh, not just the training, but also the physical security to ensure that abortion rights are going to be are going to be uh, are going to be safe in the state of Maryland, that we have four bills right now working through the legislature that I plan on signing as they make to my desk that focus on increasing access. Access, uh, increasing privacy, supporting out-of-state patients who are coming to the state of Maryland. Uh, so we are going to make sure that Maryland maintains a safe haven for abortion rights. We're, we're proud to work in partnership with other governors to do this because we know the attacks, these creative attacks that are now happening uh, on reproductive rights are not scientifically motivated. They're politically who, motivated. Who would this affect most uh, in, in your state? Because we remember uh, years ago when former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg talked about the fact that a lack of access to abortion affects uh, minorities and the poorest women the most. They cannot travel out of state, for example. Who are you most concerned about? That's right. Well, as always, you know, we're concerned about the most vulnerable. And you're absolutely right. If you look at the, the disproportionate impact on this restrictive, uh, restrictive reproductive rights and restrictive reproductive freedoms that they have, that they have on women of color, that they have on, on, on under-resourced, that they have on younger, uh, on younger women, uh, you know, we know that the impacts that we are seeing here are not seen evenly. And so when we have in Maryland, you know, our philosophy, our motto, 
is leave no one behind, that really does focus on making sure that those who are the most vulnerable are going to be the ones who are the most protected. Let's move on to a few other topics. You've, you've only been in the job for a few months, but you've got a lot on your plate. And interestingly, one of them is a healthy battle with a basketball challenge thrown in there between you and Governor Youngkin of Virginia over whether the FBI headquarters are going to go. But you wrote this Washington Post op-ed and you outlined several reasons why you are making the case that it should be in Maryland. And you included, you said it should be the logical choice, including racial equity as one of the reasons. Can you explain that? No. This is a legacy-defining choice by the Biden administration. Uh, this is the largest project that, that GSA has ever, uh, ha has ever decided on and the largest federal infrastructure project since the Pentagon and the CIA building, which, by the way, both went to Virginia and has been part of the spurn for the economic growth and development in Virginia. And, the, and what my argument is that we should just stick to the guidelines that the FBI, FBI and GSA have already laid out as to where they're going to put the new building. They said they want to focus on cost. Well, to put it in Virginia is going to cost the American taxpayer around a billion dollars more to put it in Virginia. They said they want to focus on transportation access. Maryland is, is the only build-ready site that actually has transportation assets and metro systems that are currently in place. They said they want to focus on the future mission of the FBI. Well, Director Ray has said well, a huge part of the mission is going to be cyber and cyber threats. Well, Maryland is the home of NSA and, and U.S. Cyber Command and Fort Meade. And they said they want to focus on racial equity. Well, the thing we know is that if you look at economic competitiveness of the largest 150 jurisdictions in this country, Northern Virginia and Fairfax County ranks as number two. And much of that has been because of the federal investment they've historically received. Prince George's County, which is a majority black county, mm -hmm. ranks at 107. So, and that's because of the lack of investment that's come on board. So we invite Governor Youngkin to come on and make his pitch as well. I think he'd take issue with the billion-dollar argument you made, but he's welcome to come on the program. Wes, let me move on to two other <laughs> topics before I let you go. Excuse me, Governor. Let me move on to two other topics before I let you go. One is President <laughs> Biden. You've been such a supporter of his, including a re-election bid. You really want him to run again in 2024. I do want to ask you, though, about what we've seen in just the past few weeks in terms of a real pivot to the center on some key issues. For example, overturning the D.C. crime bill, which a number of Democrats, including the, the, the mayor of D.C., were very disappointed with. A number of progressives really disappointed with that, as you know. Also, the approval of the Willow Oil Project in Alaska. Do you support the president's moves on both of those? And what do you make of this pivot? Yeah, the, the thing that I know is that, you know, the, the president's, if you just think about the first, uh, our first weeks in office, the president has, has been to the state of Maryland uh, three times just in, our, just in our first weeks of office. Uh, the first time was to announce a partnership that we have with the Frederick Douglass Tunnel, which is going to provide 30,000 jobs here to the state of Maryland. The second is focusing on broadband infrastructure, which is a huge priority of mine of making sure that everyone in the state of Maryland is going to have broadband access to affordable and accessible broadband all throughout the state in urban and rural, rural environments. And so when I think about public safety and the issue of public safety, you know, we all know that the number one priority for any chief executive is to make sure that your people are safe, both safe in their own communities and safe in their own skin. 
And I know that you can have policing that moves with appropriate intensity mm -hmm. and absolute integrity and full accountability. And that's not a choice. You have to be able to do all of those things. And so when I think about what it means to be able to, uh, to support uh, getting, making sure that we're getting keeping violent offenders off of our streets, See? making sure that we're getting keeping these illegal guns out of our neighborhoods. And then Maryland has, Maryland's the first state to just, enact just, red flag laws. Just to be clear, Governor, has very you strong support universal background Biden? checks. You support the moves on both big things that I just mentioned? Yeah, well, I, yeah, no, I, I, when, you, when you look at what happened within, within public safety, you know, the, the, you look at the state of Maryland, we were the first state to have red flag okay. laws in place. We, are, we, have, we essentially have universal background checks. We know that these are things that do work when it comes but, to but, reducing violence inside of neighborhoods. We also know we can't stop there, though. But I, okay, just to put a button on it, are you supportive of these two significant moves that the president has made that have some of your liberal colleagues not very happy? Yes or no? Yeah. I well, I, I, I know that uh, that the president's decision on uh, on a crime bill in D.C., uh, you know, does not. When I think about the state of Maryland, we know that our impact and the work that we're doing right now, both with the federal government okay. and the local government to reduce violence uh, in the state of Maryland, uh, that it is working. And we plan on continuing to double down on that investment. All right. We are we are out of time. I tried to get your answer on that. Uh, Governor Moore, we appreciate it very, very much. I hope uh, Governor Youngkin will join us as well. Thanks very much. I hope so, too. Thank okay. you. Okay. Bye. Don. All right. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, Governor. So sell your stake in the app or face a ban. Why the ban Biden administration is pushing for a sale of TikTok. All right. You see the White House there on this Thursday morning. It comes as the Biden administration is now threatening to ban TikTok from the United States unless the application's Chinese owners agree to spin off their share of the platform. Lawmakers have argued that the, that the app is a national security risk, alleging that Americans' data can be accessed by the Chinese government. TikTok's owner, ByteDance, has disputed that. The company says the U.S. user data can only be accessed by U.S. employees. Joining us now to talk about this is CNN media analyst and Axios reporter Sarah Fisher. Sarah, you know, we have been talking about a possible ban here for months. This is something we saw efforts by the Trump administration. You know, what could happen? You know, could this really happen this time if ByteDance does not comply with this request that we are seeing from the White House? Yeah, I think so, Caitlin. So CFIUS, the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States, has been trying to negotiate a deal with TikTok to figure out how the app can remain without selling to a U.S. company. Now, TikTok has given a bunch of concessions. They've promised to store U.S. data here. They've promised to give a U.S. company, Oracle, insight into its algorithms to ensure there's no content moderation problems. What we are hearing from a source inside TikTok is that CFIUS has essentially decided that if they don't have their own or sell the U.S. stake that they will face a ban. And Caitlin, as you know, that's a momentous decision. There are over 100 million users of this app in America. It would be a huge escalation as well of the Biden administration's tensions with China. Yeah, it absolutely would. Given the number you cited there, 100 million people here in the United States using TikTok. I mean, everyone knows someone who uses it. Is the infrastructure in place for it to be spun off? Like, logistically, what would that look like? 
That's a great question. I mean, that's part of what TikTok would argue would be a little bit difficult. But at the same time, they're taking steps right now to separate it out. That's part of what their Project Texas effort is. They're essentially separating the back end of user data in the U.S. so that they could protect it. So that makes their argument a little bit tougher. But to your point about whether or not there's infrastructure to ban it, you have to also know there's infrastructure, if this thing goes away, to support the American need for it. When Biden uh, started to look into this, TikTok has now grown to so many competitors that if it were to be removed or banned from the U.S., it's not like the American consumer doesn't have alternatives. Meta, the parent company to Facebook and Instagram, has Reels. Snapchat has Spotlight. And so the infrastructure to support that need still exists. Yeah, that's fair. We'll, we'll see. This would be a monumental decision, though, still. Sarah Fisher, thank you. Don? All right, Caitlin, thank you very much. The Mediterranean diet has topped the list of best overall diet when it comes to health benefits for six years in a row. Now a new study finds that the Mediterranean diet may lower heart disease risk in women by 24% and lower the risk of early death by 23%. The diet includes foods like fish, vegetables, and whole grains. The study comes with some limitations since the data relies on self-reported food intake. Two testimonies, one week. Former Trump attorney Michael Cohen Speaking to a grand jury twice this week about his former boss, Michael Cohen, joins us live in studio for his first in-person interview since those testimonies. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. The failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank really shaking investor confidence in banks around the world, but also around the corner on Main Street. This week, credit ratings for Moody's cut the outlook it has for the entire U.S. banking sector and also placed six regional banks on review for potential credit ratings downgrades. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is about to testify before the Senate Finance Committee this morning. She is expected to say, quote, our banking system remains sound. Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there when they need them. Joining us now is the CEO of one of those banks that Moody's has placed on review, UMB Finance, based in Kansas City, the CEO, Mariner Kemper. Mariner, thank you very much for your time. And let's begin with why Moody's placed you guys on this list that no one wants to be on. Uh, They say a high, we know from your filings, that a high percentage of your deposits are uninsured. And Moody's says the share of the deposits, which are above the FDIC insurance threshold, is material. And they say that makes your funding profile more sensitive and at risk. What do you say? Well, first of all, let's be clear. They they have not issued uh, their opinion yet. So I meet with them later today, and we fully expect to redirect uh, the misinformation and get back on track. But specifically related to uninsured deposits, we do have... A high percentage of them, but it's it's based on our business model. We are a commercial bank doing business with businesses, and by definition, those those relationships have more than two hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars in deposits. But these are deeply integrated relationships that have been with us 10, 20, 30 years. We've been in contact with all of them. They stand in solidarity. They're deeply integrated with other mm-hmm. services. They're not just depositors. And the other thing is different from SVB. They're uh, highly diverse. Um, so we don't have any one sector, sector. in our deposit base that, has, that yeah. has more than uh, 6% deposits in any one sector, whereas they had 
45% of the deposits just in tech alone. Yeah. No, I hear you, but there are other, that is a difference. Other similarities are, though, a lot of catering to businesses, so therefore they have, a lot of the accounts do have higher amounts above what's insured. Well, additionally, six, six, you know, six billion of our 30 billion in deposits are uh -huh. to governments, and they, by law, have to be collateralized. Mm -hmm. So they're essentially insured. So if you put those numbers back into our numbers, we go from 75 to low 50s, which is in line with the large banks. Uh, and they don't account for that. I'm going to share that with them later today. Okay. Uh, is your reading from what the government did here to step in and uh, secure the deposits, uh, all the deposits at Signature and SVB, is it your read that the government would do that for any failed bank now? Well, I, I guess I would redirect and say there, there isn't a financial crisis. That's an idiosyncratic issue for Signature and for SVB. There is no financial crisis taking place. There's no reason for anybody to be concerned about their deposits mm -hmm. because there's no crisis. So this is my not my first trip to the rodeo as it relates to crisis of confidence. I've been in this job for 20 years. Yeah. We've seen this before. All of our depositors on the great preponderance have already recommitted to us. And this yeah. thing is already over. Although I would say, I don't know that it's over. I mean, look at the pressure on other uh, regional banks like First Republic. I hope you're right. But you've got folks like Ray Dalio, who founded one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. As you know, Bridgewater, who said yesterday it's a canary in a coal mine. And it's likely the bank failures will be followed by many more problems. The next two years, he says, will be a, quote, very risky time. Um, there's concerns. Larry Summers told me last night about a credit crunch with these rapid uh, interest rate increases. How can you be sure? Well, I can be sure because you look at the current data and the current data would say there isn't, it comes out every quarter. There are, there is no credit crisis. Credit looks pretty good at the banks. Uh, we don't, we don't have any credit problems to speak of. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, don't, I don't think most of the regional banks do. You know, a venture capitalist, uh, head of a firm as a talking head doesn't speak for the nation, doesn't speak for the industry. Uh, I've been doing this for 20 years. And I would say that we don't have a crisis. Yeah. Trying to calm nerves. Final message, and I got 20 seconds left, to customers who are worried and say, should I move my money to a bigger bank? Well, again, no crisis. But as it relates to UMB, we're, uh, we have a 65% loan to deposit ratio. Mm -hmm. You make the comparison to SVB, they had 70% of their assets tied to securities, which means they don't float with interest rates. 60% yep. of my assets float with interest rates. So we don't have an issue related to a, a, a squeeze. And so anyway, we've got, we're highly liquid, got great regulatory capital levels. And um, I've already talked, you know, the great thing about being a commercial bank is you can talk to all your customers. Yeah. And uh, the great proponents of them have already recommitted. Yesterday, we didn't have any outflows. And, you know, it's, it's this That's thing's over. That means, uh, that means people were not taking their money out of your bank yesterday, just in, in layman's terms. Yeah. Um, we appreciate your time. Yeah, exactly. uh, you're welcome to come back, by the way, after you meet with Moody's. Thank you very much, Mariner Kemper. Absolutely. Thank you, Poppy. You're welcome. CNN This Morning continues right now. Yes, we begin with breaking news. It is a very busy news day. Good morning, everyone. As you can see, Caitlin is in D.C. this morning. We're following a lot of news. The news is happening from D.C. to New York and all over. New video just released this morning from the U.S. military showing the moment a Russian fighter jet 
forced down a U.S. drone over the Black Sea. It is stunning. It is rare video. And we're going to show you the midair encounter. And as Don noted, we're also tracking several developments in the Manhattan District Attorney's hush money investigation into Donald Trump. Stormy Daniels met with prosecutors yesterday. And moments from now, Trump's former fixer and attorney, Michael Cohen, who also has spoken with him, is going to join us live for his first in-person interview, TV interview since testifying. We're also tracking the turmoil in the global banking system following the collapse of two U.S. banks. Credit Suisse was thrown a critical lifeline as well by uh, the Swiss National Bank. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will testify this morning before Senate lawmakers. She will reassure Americans that, quote, the banking system remains sound. But here's where we, we begin this morning. It is with our breaking news. The Pentagon has released a video of a Russian fighter jet hitting a U.S. drone, forcing it to crash right into the Black Sea. And you can see the jet dumping fuel as it comes swooping past the drone with barely any room to spare. A second clip shows a jet coming back in for a second pass, but this time it collides with the drone and the video, the feed cuts out. That's when you can see color bars. Yeah, and you can see the drone's propeller blades, we'll pull this back up for you, are clearly damaged, bent out of shape, one of them cut in half. U.S. officials tell CNN that the Russian pilots were ordered to harass that drone. Republican Senator Marco Rubio, the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, just weighed in on this. Listen. And so I think we should fly more of them. We shouldn't stop flying them. And in many cases, we should be prepared to scramble jets and respond if they are threatened by uh, Russian aircraft. So let's bring in anchor and chief national security correspondent Jim Shudo. Jim, wow. And this new news yes. that it was ordered, right? This wasn't some like mistake, as the Russian government was saying yesterday. What is the new information you're learning? Well, I'm learning that uh, this was video that the U.S. military was able to extract just in the last 24 hours that they had video yesterday. But that video did not show with the detail you see here just how close and how dangerous that encounter was. Uh, they were able to get this right up to the moment, uh, as, as you were noting before, that it gets hit physically and then goes to bar as it loses transmission. Uh, so in other words, they were looking for the most uh, incontrovertible evidence they could have to share with the public. And that's what we have here now to contradict the Russian version of events, which is to say uh, that they did not come into direct contact with this plane. Now, now the one open question remains this. Yes, Russian pilots have been harassing U.S. surveillance flights with more frequency and more aggressiveness in recent, uh, in recent days, weeks, and months. Uh, and that this particular interaction, U.S. officials believe, was ordered by Russian higher-ups. The question is, was it ordered just to harass or to actually hit uh, that drone? And, and that remains an open question. Listen, though, what U.S. officials tell me is whether you were told to hit it physically or not, flying that close, dumping your fuel, as we see there on the jet, uh, and doing so repeatedly, flying so close repeatedly, that's deliberate, and that creates the danger of just such an interaction as this. Uh, and that is certainly the U.S. view at this point. Listen, that very good question that um, you're posing there about whether it was intentional or not. Uh, I spoke to Cedric Layton uh, earlier uh, today, and he said earlier this morning, he says it, it, he believes that it was intentional to try to down the drone or at least to mm -hmm. damage the drone with the fuel spillage. But to actually come into physical yeah. contact with that drone is very dangerous to the pilots. Yeah. Doesn't believe that that part was intentional. It just happened as they were trying to down it with the fuel, possibly. 
Listen, it's a, by the way, whatever, whatever the final conclusion is, you dump fuel on a plane, you fly this close, that's dangerous, and, right. and you have to accept the risk of, of a collision. The, the, the bigger you know, danger going forward, right, is that you have a lot of uncrewed surveillance aircraft flying around both Russia and China, but you have many crewed ones, ones as well. There, there is harassment both by Russia and China of crewed missions not to this degree, but listen, if, if you're flying that close, it increases the risk of something like that. So you can imagine, you know, a, a more uh, dangerous scenario where you have such harassment and it puts a crew in danger. Thankfully, we'll, we're not there, but we should be conscious. You do have a lot of crewed flights flying uh, in similar areas. And, and that is certainly a risk that, that well, uh, the U.S. side is certainly aware of. It's certainly, listen, an act of aggression. Where does this place uh, national security or international security for, for that matter, Jim? It's, it's something that we have to watch very closely. You and I, we, we were talking about this over the last 24 hours. There, there is an enormous amount of U.S. and Russian and NATO hardware flying in and around the Ukrainian airspace right now with the largest war in Europe since World War II. There's been tremendous effort made over the course of the last three, 13 months to avoid those assets coming into direct conflict. conflict. There are lines open to, to deconflict, as it's known, so that they don't come into direct conflict, so that you don't end up shooting each other, at each other, right? Or, or putting each other in danger. And this interaction shows that when you, when you mess with those rules and when you deliberately harass, it increases the risk of exactly that. And, and why has there been such care taken to keep those forces separate? So that this does not become uh, a direct military conflict between the U.S. and NATO and Russia. Yeah. This interaction right there shows just how dangerous and how close those those assets are. Don't you think, Jim, that this really also emphasizes how important it is to have the diplomatic lines of communication open between yeah. two countries? Like, remember Caitlin's interview with Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, mm -hmm. when he confirmed a few weeks ago to her that those lines with China, you know, after they weren't picking up the phone, they still weren't. This is why yeah. that's important, right, Jim? hundred percent. And at two levels. One, at the higher di diplomatic level, you want the two countries speaking to, to each other in these very tense times. But also at the military level, there are de-conflict lines with the express function right. of commanders talking to commanders. So this kind of thing doesn't happen. You got to keep those lines open because the danger is real. And, and remember, Go back 20 years. You, do, you, do you remember that interaction over China? A Chinese jet harassed a crude U.S. spy flight. Mm -hmm. This was over Hainan Island in 2001. Right. Harassed it, hit it, brought that jet down with great danger to the crew. That, of course, is, is, is the nightmare scenario. Yeah. Jim Shudo, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, also this morning, there are new developments in two of the investigations surrounding former President Trump. His legal troubles now span from Manhattan to Atlanta from alleged hush money payments to reported attempts to overturn the 2020 election results. In Manhattan, Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, has testified against uh, again before a New York grand jury for the second time just this week. Stormy Daniels, who is at the center of all of this, also met with prosecutors from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. It's all part of that investigation into Trump's alleged role in the hush money payments that Stormy Daniels received. Michael Cohen is in our New York studio. We're going to talk to him about what he said in just a few moments, but we're also tracking developments in Georgia. As we are now learning, there's another recording of former President Trump pressuring an official to overturn his election loss. Our CNN senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polance, is following all of this and, track, and joins us now. 
another call, another recording. What is Trump saying on this recording? Well, this is the third recording we know of, and this recording was heard by the special grand jury sitting in Georgia, looking at whether they would make recommendations to prosecutors to potentially bring charges against Trump. And this call was to the Georgia House Speaker, David Ralston, at the time. Trump basically wanted him to convene uh, the General Assembly, to convene the state legislature to stop the result of the election, uh, get involved in the federal election results. We know from what Ralston said about the day after this call, he said that that he pushed back against this, told Trump basically this wasn't going to happen. It was going to be an uphill battle. But we haven't heard exactly what was said here, how hard Trump pushed, what exactly he was asking, and what Ralston told him in response. Those exact words would have been lost uh, to history, basically, because Ralston died in November. But this recording Recording did exist. Uh, we are learning that it does exist. It was heard by those grand jurors and could become evidence if there's a case brought in Georgia against yeah. the former president. And we've seen how big that other recording of him with Brad Raffensperger has been. The other development that's happening here that I'm super fascinated by, and I know you are too, is the chief judge here in Washington that has really been at the center of Jack Smith, the special counsel's investigations when it comes to the classified documents, but also Trump's alleged role on January 6th as they're looking into that and what that looked like. I guess I shouldn't say alleged, but what exactly he did in the lead up to that. She is stepping down tomorrow. What is the significance of that? Why does that matter to people who are paying attention to this? Right. So this is the passing of the gavel from the administrator of the federal court in D.C. to the next person to take charge. And that role is very important. It isn't necessarily the judge who would get the case uh, if Donald Trump or others were indicted in the Jack Smith special counsel investigations. But it is the person who manages and makes decisions on what happens in the grand jury proceedings. So prosecutors call people to the grand jury. And if there's a fight over that, if Donald Trump, we know he's been fighting uh, eight to 10 different cases in court, Judge Beryl Howell has been making the decisions on those things. She's given the green light to prosecutors, to House investigators. Uh, She's also been trying to be very transparent about what is happening in those proceedings as much as she can. She passes the gavel to a longtime Washingtonian who's very well respected, very well known in Washington, named Jeb Boesberg. Uh, He is the judge that takes over as the chief of the D.C. District Court. I sat down with them both last week, asked them how they were going to be handling things, what they were expecting going forward. Uh, Clearly, the grand jury is going to take up a lot of their time. Uh, It took a lot of Howell's time. It's probably going to be taking a lot of Boesberg's time. And one of the things he was able to say is that he would try to be as transparent as Howell was able to be on any sealed proceedings that come before him. So we don't know exactly what he will do. He could be different from her, but... Uh, it is going to be a very key role going forward. Yeah. Trump's attorneys are watching this closely as well. Caitlin Pollitt, great reporting. Thank you for, for joining us this morning. Don. Caitlin and Caitlin, thank you very much. I'll pick up where you guys left off. As we mentioned, the Manhattan DA is continuing its investigation of Donald Trump's role into hush money payments to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Daniels met with prosecutors in the DA's office while key witnesses Michael Cohen, or witness Michael Cohen, testified before the grand jury for the second time this week. So joining us now for his first TV on TV or in-person interview uh, since those testimonies, Donald Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, also the author of the book Revenge, how Donald Trump weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice against his critics. And he's also the host of the Mia Copa podcast and political 
breakdown. So political breakdown podcast. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate you waking you. up early to see us and to do it in person. Of Your course. other interviews have been just on the phone, correct? No, my so, other interviews with the district. No, I mean on television, yes, for television. Yes, so this phoners. is your first time. Okay, so thank you. Listen, it has been 21 or 22 times. So I met with the DA's office 20 times for interviews and then two times for grand jury. Why are you cooperating so fully? Because that was the pledge that I made when I stood before Judge William H. Pauley and I said that I will cooperate. And I didn't need a 5K1 agreement. I wasn't part of any cooperation agreement. Democracy is more important than anything. And I know it sounds hokey, but my goal is to ensure that truth comes out and that truth to power is told. In as far as... Um uh, on the list of witnesses, do you know where you are? Are you the last one or towards the end? I would presume that I am. I know from reading the same reports that you have, whether it's the Times or Wall Street Journal, that there have been, what, seven or eight witnesses that have come in and spoken before the grand jury. I'm not aware. that That's the one thing about this district attorney's office. They're really quiet about everything. You don't get any information about anything other than what pertains to you. So let me ask you about the questions. I know that you want to protect the investigation. You want to respect what Alvin Bragg and his, his office is doing here. And why ask me the question? <laughs> I, I just want to see what you can. What, what did prosecutors ask you? What can you tell us about? I really here? can't talk about any of the topics. Obviously, you know that one of them deals with the hush money payments. But I will tell you that one of the things I think that will come out of this investigation other than the potential indictment of Donald Trump, is a lot of information about how the Southern District of New York dealt with me in my specific case. Now, what's difficult for me to do is always to talk about my own case because people will say, oh, well, you're partisan to your own case and you're trying to make a point. That's why, you know, like Lanny Davis, my, my attorney, he's been with, this, uh, with me in this journey since day number one. Mm-hmm. And he has so much information about the weaponization of the Justice Department against me that there's nobody else that knows the story better. Okay, so you can't really, uh, you don't want to talk about the, the specific questions. Let me, can you take us inside then and talk about the process of the grand jury? Who is interviewing you? What is it like? Are they each asking you questions? So the, the, there's a lead prosecutor in the district attorney's um, office who handled the questioning. It was like a, um, it was being on trial. You're Mm -hmm. sitting in the front, there are 23 grand jurors. And at the end of the um, prosecutor's questioning, then the grand jurors get an opportunity to ask you their own specific questions. Did each of the 23 grand jurors? I can't say that each and every one, but for the most part, yeah. So Okay, so then what types of questions? I know this specifically, what types of questions? Again, those questions all relate to the topics. Okay. And it's really so much better if Lanny Davis was sitting here, and that way he can sit and talk to you about these sort of issues. Uh, For me, I really do want to respect the process for two reasons. One, because that was a pledge that I made to them. But more importantly, if I do get called as a witness at the trial... I don't want anything that I say now to impede upon that ability. I understand that. You're an attorney, so you know how this works. And let me ask you then, if you met with them 20 times and then uh, for the grand jury twice. So 
They have met with other witnesses, including Kellyanne Conway, Hope Hicks, both who, both of whom were David close. Pecker, Dylan Howard. Um, there was also uh, Jeff McConney, Deborah Tarasoff. Okay, so two questions here. As you go back to after they have spoken to these other witnesses, does that inform them as to what they ask you the next time? I don't know how they run their process. They're what not I, asking you the same questions over and over. No, before. of course not. You understand? Yes, I sure do. Yeah. They. So again, to respect their process, what I can tell you is that their questioning of me started out at like 35,000 feet. Okay. And by the time that I hit the 20th interview, we were down to like three feet ready to land. The um, grand jury was the actual takeoff back to, um, we'll call it accountabilityville. So the, the grand jury questions are different than the questions that they initially asked you? They're on the same points, but they're not exactly the same. Okay. Uh, Stormy Daniels testified uh, in front of the grand jury, at least met with the grand jury uh, yesterday through I, I don't know that Zoom. to be You don't know factual. that to be true. No. What do you think, what do you think of, the, of Stormy Daniels being brought into the process? Because that's a surprise to people. Does that change this investigation? Does that show you that it's ratcheting up, that an indictment is, is imminent? It certainly doesn't benefit Donald for Stormy Daniels to be talking about it. So if that helps the district attorney's case to go forward, um, so be it. Mm -hmm. I do know, and I'm prepared to tell you, they have a tremendous amount of information. Now, a lot of people have attacked my credibility. Truth be told, right? at the end of the day, they can attack me all they want. This, this, this case is not going to be predicated on any one individual, but rather it's going to be predicated on the documents, All the right. evidence, the text messages, the emails. All right. So that, because Donald Trump's attorney, Joe Tacopina, is also attacking your credibility. If we can play that real okay, quick. Can I, before I you do respond. that, can I just see this one second? Yeah, you're, so, I know you're talking about <laughs> the, the interview that he did yeah, on yeah, another uh, Joe, network. that's how you end up asking somebody for a document. <laughs> Let's play it real quick. Alan Bragg once said, and I hope he remembers these words, uh, he can't see a world in which he would base a prosecution of Donald Trump on the word of a convicted perjurer and felon like Michael Cohen. Um, he's still a convicted perjurer. He's uh, someone who was convicted of lying. Um, and it's not about vengeance. It's about all about vengeance for him. I know that you're very sensitive and you take umbrage to that. And you were also recreating something that he did in an interview on another yes. network trying to take some. Yeah, I was, uh, I was just trying to poke fun at him, which what is do you just make, so easy. What do you think of what he said? Well, I think he's a fool. And worse than that, what, what's going to happen, and again, I've, I've been by Trump's side so long, I could tell you the playbook onto it. Donald sent him out in order to lie, in order to continue with a narrative that only Donald wanted. He's failed in that. And so soon... He'll get cut off, just like so many others, when Rudy messed up or Alina Haba messed up or Corcoran or Eastman or any of the other ones. And he will just send them, he'll just send them on their way. And Takapina will be just one of many. What do you, who else can corroborate what Michael Cohen is saying? Or what Michael clearly, Cohen is? clearly everyone. You see, it's easy to turn around and to say, oh, Michael Cohen's a convicted liar. That happens to be true. I did. I pled guilty to a 1,001 violation. I accepted that. But what you need to do, and so many pundits do this, and it's wrong, you need to finish the sentence. Yes, I, I, I was convicted, I pled guilty to a 1,001 violation, but I did it at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. And they have to, to other stuff outside of Donald hold, Trump. Hold on one second, that's, that's true. But we're talking about the, the, what Takapina wants to call the perjury charge. What I lied about, 
was the number of times that I spoke to Donald Trump about a failed real estate project in Moscow, Trump Tower, Moscow. I stated to Congress the number of times was three. In fact, the number of times was 10. If you think or anybody thinks that that's going to stop me from being a credible witness, considering everything that I've told Mueller, seven different congressional committees, the attorney general, the district attorney, and so many others, has always been proven to be truthful and accurate, well, so be it. You can still have a point of view and an opinion about this without giving anything up. Having spoken and met with them so many times, do you believe that an indictment is imminent? I do. Okay. And uh, do you, when do you think it can happen? Sooner rather than later? Let, let's all hope it's sooner rather than later. Because everyone needs to be held accountable. Yeah. Everyone needs to be held to the same standard of the law. And that includes former presidents. All right. Thank you very much, Michael. Good to see I you, I appreciate Don. it. Come back, please, if Anytime. something does happen. Uh, Donald Trump does uh, deny that uh, those hush money payments, of course, he has denied it all along in any affairs as well. Poppy? Don, thank you. Fascinating interview. All right, a look at stock futures this morning as the markets remain under pressure from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. In just a couple hours, the Senate Finance Committee will hold a hearing with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. We're going to be joined by a member of the committee she will be speaking to. That is Senator Bill Cassidy. He's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Just a short time from now, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will testify before the Senate Finance Committee in the wake of the sudden collapse of two U.S. banks. She is expected to tell the committee, quote, our banking system remains sound. Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there when they need them. This also comes after the huge Swiss bank Credit Suisse took a cash infusion of more than $50 billion from the Swiss National Bank. They are different yeah. But boy, it's a bad week for banks. And what we're hearing from Washington really is that they're they're hoping that the exposure from Credit Suisse is not going to be big in the U.S. And those are two very different different issues. So how are international markets reacting? I mean, I think they're searching for stability yeah. this morning. European markets searching for some direction. You can see Asia closed lower, but Europe has opened mix. These are the mm. stock gauges there. And if you look at stock index futures here, they are narrowly mixed here. Again, searching for stability. And I think that's definitely what we want to see. NASDAQ futures are up here, uh, but Dow futures are down just a little bit. But that's not a big, those are not big moves at all. What we'll be watching are those regional um, stocks. And you've seen what's happened to them over the past few days, really taking a beating as everyone's looking at these these regional banks that may have a lot of deposits that are uninsured. Are people going to be wanting to move out of those? So big drops in those. And then this morning, regional bank stocks have renewed uh, renewed pressure again. So this is what's happened the past couple of days, trying to stabilize here. That's a big decline in these regional bank stocks. And you talk to one CEO of one of those. He told me it's over. For him? Yeah, he just told me this crisis is over. I'm not I'm not so sure. Well, so. maybe this is the worst of it. But yeah, if you look maybe. right now, you can see many of those stocks are down yeah. again this morning. So we're just watching those stocks. You've got okay. First Republic down 29% this morning again. Again? Probably. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, so look, we've got... A big bank failure, two of them last week. Big concerns about stability in the banking sector. But for now, hoping we're putting a floor yep. under bank stress for now. Let's hope. Christy yep. Roman, thank nice you very much. You. Caitlin. And of course, Poppy, as you were just talking about there, Secretary Yellen is going to be before the Senate Finance Committee today. Joining us now is one of the members of that committee, that committee, Louisiana's Senator Bill Cassidy. Thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. When, Senator, when Secretary Yellen's before your committee today, what are your top questions for her? Well, a couple of things. First, there's obviously going to be questions about the bank and the administration's response. Uh, if you look at what FDIC um, um, kind of should have been doing 
or the regulators should have been doing, they clearly weren't doing it. Uh, uh, folks wonder, do we need more regulation? I say, I'm not sure it's the problem with the regulation. It might be a problem with the regulator. That'll be thoroughly explored. And I will be asking about Social Security because I think everybody would have exhausted the bank topic by the time they get to me. Yeah, we do want to talk about Social Security. But when you just talked about regulation there, you did vote in 2018 on the rollback of some of those regulations. We've heard some Democrats blaming that, saying that is part of what contributed to what happened with SVB. Do you stand by that vote? Imagine that, a Democrat blaming, blaming a Republican when it's a Democratic administration which is asleep at the switch. Never have heard that before, have you? If you look at, I, I stand by that vote. With the vote, yeah. I stand by that vote. Even um, though it loosened the, the oversight when no, it comes it was to not the about banks oversight. of this size. It was not about oversight. What it said is that the regulators have the option, instead of every year doing a stress test, of, um, of it wouldn't be mandatory, it would be optional. Now, if you look at publicly traded, um, if you look at Wall Street, Wall Street looked at this bank back in December, saw that their assets were in long-term low interest yielding bonds and that their liabilities were rapidly going up. And Jerome Powell was saying over and over and over again, we're gonna raise interest rates. Now, the regulators should have stepped in and they should have said, wait a second, we've got a low yield assets and we've got a high yield liability, we've got a problem. Wall Street said that. I'm told that people sold the stock short and made hundreds of millions of dollars. So Wall Street gets it, but the regulators don't. Secondly, uh, uh, the um, value of the bank skyrocketed. Uh, And as it skyrocketed, that, I'm told, should have been a warning, a red flag for the regulators to step in and say, hmm, banks exploding in value. Is there some bubble taking place within the bank? They did not do that either. Uh, So I think there's a lot of things that you can look at that a wise regulator would have said, hmm, this is not good. So you have a lot of questions for the bank, for the regulators and the people who are supposed to be in charge of this, also people running the bank. But when it comes to that legislation, if some Democrats, as they're moving to maybe reinstate those regulations, you're saying you don't think that's effective. You know, we have a saying, I'm a doctor, we have a saying in medicine, don't just do something, think. Uh, So Washington sees something happen, it's, 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 you know, we got to do something. No, you've got to think through the process. Is what we're doing going to be productive? Were the rules in place adequate but just poorly enforced? Now, if it turns out we need more regulations, then do more regulations. But don't just kind of reflexly do something before you know what happened. Okay, but you are open to potentially doing that once you look into what went wrong. Yes, but I will say at this point, it seems more a failure of regulators, not a regulation. Okay, one thing you've been talking about in the midst of this is Social Security. And you've said you believe Social Security is the SVB of of, uh, those kind of healthcare systems. Tell me what you mean by that, because I know you've been talking to Senator Angus King and other senators about what a plan to, to extend and shore up Social Security would look like. Yes, so right now Social Security has low-yielding assets. We're in Treasury bills, which might be, and cash, which might be the T-bills might be, um, the Treasuries might be yielding 1 to 2 to 3%. And we're in a high-inflation environment. The, The Social Security Trust Fund is going broke in nine years. The president knows that, but he keeps telling the American people it's no problem. Um, He has not told us what he wants to do. It is going broke in nine years. At that point, there'll be a 25% cut. And with someone who's depending on Social Security, a 25% cut in what they're getting, and the president doesn't seem to care. 
Well, I mean, I, the White House would push back on that, I should say. How? Because he, what, what is their plan? What is their, He's not announced a plan. Well, if I, I interviewed Shalonda Young, the White House budget director, on Sunday. We talked about the White House budget and how it, they talked about protecting Social Security. Now, how do they protect it? Because well, yesterday she was asking committee, and she could not give an answer about their plan. Well, can I, I don't work for the White House, obviously. I'm telling you that I, we talked to them about what the plan would look like to to extend it, to make it solvent after you know the next decade, because those are real concerns. So we have talked to them about that. They have pushed back on that, saying you know it's also a divided Congress that they're working with. But I do want to ask you about something that a fellow Republican of yours is proposing on Social Security, and that's raising the age, uh, the retirement age. This is something Nikki Haley has proposed for people who are in their 20s and younger now doing that. Is that something you think would be effective? It depends. To do it by itself, it clearly not be effective. Uh, what we've done in our approach, by the way, is to create a fund separate from Social Security, separate, but have it a diversified investment fund that would grow and could take up, could, could, could take up by far the majority of our future obligation. Now, that is an approach that we're taking that the White House could engage with us on. I'll go back to Ms. Young, who I really like, but nonetheless, they've not presented a plan. The president's willing to let this go bankrupt because he doesn't want to talk about it before his reelection. It is irresponsible, it is foolish, and it is wrong for the American people. You're saying you want to see President Biden come out with a plan that would... Would you be working with the White House on that? Would you of negotiate course. with them on that? Of course. Because I think that's been a part of the no, that's not pushback true. here. I can t- that's no pushback. I can tell you that we have made ourselves clear that we'll be open to working with the White House. We have a bipartisan group approaching this. Well, I just I'm going to say, because the White House, you know, is going to point out what Senator Rick Scott has well, said about course, Social Security. Of course, because that's what they have to retreat to. Well, he Once, is a fellow Republican oh, of yeah. yours. And, I, you know, there's a Democrat who said something kind of stupid, too. And so we're going to take one person as an excuse not to engage when the average beneficiary will see a 25% cut. Well, he's not just an average senator. You, you, oh, you come do. on. Caitlin, you know better than that. It's one senator saying one thing that the president gloms on to um, uh, because he doesn't want to actually have to come up with a plan. He's the president of the United States. He should come forward with a plan or else there'll be a 25% cut for people who currently depend upon Social Security. If that doesn't matter to you, you're either running for re-election, you're too old to care, or you're too rich to need the money. I do think it matters. I just think we have to note what Senator Rick Scott has said, because uh, that Scott is important is, here. Rick Scott has actually retreated from that. I mean, that is a know, talking we, point for the president. We've but had him on no, the program. But it has no relevance to what we're trying to do. We have a bipartisan solution uh, approach that we're willing to talk to the White House about, and the White House doesn't want to talk to us. With your solution that you've been, or your solution, your plan that you've been putting forward, are you going to lay out exactly what that plan would look like? And are tax revenue uh, revenues on the table? We have an approach. It's not a solid plan yet. The reason okay. it's not a solid plan is because we got to talk to the White House. Because they're going to want to have some modification of it. So you'd have to talk to the White House before you unveiled exactly the specifics of Of course, because this is a negotiation. We are so intent on working with the White House that we are willing to keep things kind of on hold. We have, a, we have an approach until they come forward and say, this is how we think we can do it together. We want to take White House priorities and include it because I don't want... I don't want someone who's depending upon Social Security to get a 25% cut, and that's going to happen with the president asleep at the wheel. I think a lot of people don't want those cuts to happen. But then it, why doesn't the White House put up with a plan? They're not doing that. Well, I think you'll have to ask the White House what, what that would look to. like, but they would want to work with you, and they would like to see your plan as of well course. the specifics of it. No, we are Senator, willing to meet negotiation, but they are so far unwilling to do so. All right, Senator, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, us. Fascinating.
<laughs> nice job, Caitlin. Nice Senator, job, Senator. That's what you get with the Caitlin Collins interview. She's going to keep asking until you answer the question. No, it's, I think I answer the question. It's <laughs> such an important topic. Yeah, Thank you for your, for, state, your, Louisiana, by the way. for your time. He's got to go to a call. Here. All right, all right. We got to let him go ahead. Why the superintendent of the largest school district in Texas is being forced out in what is being described as a takeover of the education system there. Republican leaders in Texas have announced one of the largest school takeovers in U.S. history. The state government is taking over public schools in Houston, a city that's led by Democrats. Texas state officials insist that they're stepping in because the school district is failing. But Democrats say it is political. Adrian Broaddus reports. It is the largest school district in Texas, and now it's facing one of the largest school takeovers in the country's history. This is a crime. I want to go on record to say this is a crime. Yes, it is. It's a crime against public education, and it's a crime against the Houston community. On Wednesday, the state commissioner of education said the state will take over the Houston Independent School District, quote, in the next couple of months. Some are doubtful about what is coming. If I were parents, I'd be terrified. TEA does not have a history of fixing any schools. The state intervening under a state law that allows it to remove the locally elected school board, claiming the district is failing to meet certain state standards. There has been a long time failure by HISD and the victims of that failure are the students. The state will now take responsibility for the district's 180,000 students and 25,000 employees. You cannot run school districts and cities and counties from Austin, Texas. The state deserves an F on how they have handled this process up to this point. It will also replace the district superintendent, who sounded optimistic about the future days ago. I stand here as the superintendent of HISD to say, we are not just overcoming those challenges, but together we are building a school district that is delivering on its promises again. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner said the takeover is troubling, but not unexpected. It comes after a lengthy court battle between the district and the education commissioner, which ended in January with the judge ruling in the commissioner's favor. The state teachers union came out strongly against Wednesday's action, saying its members hope for the best. For their sake, I have no choice at this point but to wish them well and hope that they succeed. But make no mistake, we will watch every move. As local leaders promise to continue the fight against a takeover they believe is unnecessary. I have not conceded. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. I do not believe that this mm-hmm. is you. the end. And I still believe that the people in Houston, yeah. Texas, with their children, can prevail and yeah. maintain control of yeah. their schools. Yeah. I still yeah. believe it. And according to the district's website, more than 90 percent of the student population identify as non-white. The question now is with this state takeover, will the district see an academic improvement? Back to you. All right. We'll be watching. Thank you, Adrian. This song that you're listening to, listen, was not created by a DJ or a producer, a real person. It was created by artificial intelligence. Who owns it? Who gets the royalties? A fascinating debate ahead. 
People of my age will know whose voice that is supposed to be. Uh, Eminem, right? No, it's not. It is Grammy award-winning DJ David Guetta created this track through AI, and it's fascinating. Vanessa Yurkevich has been reporting on this. How did he do this? So David Guetta, he's on tour. He's a world-famous DJ. He gets interested in artificial intelligence, just like all of us. He signs on to ChatGPT. He types in, write a verse in the style of Eminem about future rave. He goes to another AI platform. He pops those lyrics in and asks it to produce Eminem's voice. It does. He does this in about an hour. He plays it at his show that night. I want you to listen to how he said the crowd responded and also his thoughts on how artificial intelligence is gonna impact the music industry. Was it a reaction beyond maybe some of your own songs that you've put out? <laughs> People were screaming, yes. <laughs> the reaction was very big. So technically, you created this song with the AI. Technically, you own the copyright. There's a, a little bit of an ethical problem because when I'm using uh, Eminem's voice, I don't think there's a law right now about this. Do you think there needs to be federal regulation around artificial intelligence? I think maybe not yet. I, I, I like that it's very free and open right now. And, but at some point, yes, the question is going to has to be raised. I think like AI is going to be a huge influence on music. Being an artist is having a certain view on the world. And it doesn't matter what the tools are. Many years ago, you needed to study uh, music theory. You needed to go to a big studio. Now, kids are making huge hit records in the bedrooms on the laptop. You're saying it's so easy for new artists to make a hit record, but in some instances, they could be a, a competitor to you. Um, that's not the way I look at it. I don't want to fight it, I want to embrace it. What makes me who I am is the creative process and the machine will never have a taste the way a human can have the taste. Now, David Guetta said that he doesn't plan to release this song commercially, partly because of all of the ethics and questions around copyright, and also he doesn't want to get into a beef with Eminem. But he's very much in favor of artificial intelligence. He said he'd even be open to creating an entire album with artificial intelligence. So really interesting. He's just starting to get involved in this, but he thinks this is, this is the future, and it's a good thing for music. A lot of artists and people are going to say, Where my, where's my money? Where's my voice? Where my that's my voice. Yeah, yeah, Thank that's you, my voice. Vanessa. Thank you very much. An incredible water rescue in Los Angeles caught on camera. You'll want to see this. Wow. Time now for your morning moment. An incredible water rescue caught on video. The Los Angeles Fire Department's search and rescue team hoisted this man to safety after he became, became trapped in the Los Angeles River. The water's raging, you see that, due to the powerful winter storm in the area. The man was in the water clinging to a concrete sheer wall for 30 minutes before first responders could rescue him. They lifted him into a chopper. He is 51 years old. He was taken to the hospital, treated for hypothermia. 
Another reason to be grateful for those first responders. Wow, can you imagine no. folks who run into danger? Caitlin, busy day in Washington, D.C. Yeah, it really has. And, you know, typically this would be a week where it's quieter. You saw Patrick McHenry here here with me earlier. The House is not even in session this week, but that is the sign of just the momentum growing on, on Capitol Hill when it comes to the collapse of SVV. As you all know, the Treasury Secretary, yeah. Janet Yellen, she'll be on the Hill in the next hour to testify. It was supposed to be about the budget. She's going to be getting asked a lot of questions about their response to, to what's happening with the banking system. All right. We'll see you tomorrow, I think, here in New York, right? Yep. Yes. Yes. See ya. <laughs> see ya. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.